ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to the Institute. Uh, I'm John Lynchavsky, president of the Institute, and uh, it is our uh, great pleasure today to introduce uh, a longtime friend of the school, uh, Dr. Phil Williams, who uh, is uh, one of our country's great experts on uh, the Near East, on, uh, particularly on on the Anatolian Peninsula, it's a long time history. Um, Phil uh, originally comes from Michigan. He uh, has uh, studied at the University of Virginia, the University of Edinburgh, uh, the University of Florence, uh, and has uh, a couple of master's degrees and a doctorate in international law and diplomacy from the Fletcher School uh, at Tufts. Uh, he has lived in four foreign countries uh, has studied and worked professionally with four foreign languages, French, Greek, Italian, and Turkish. Uh, a large part of his career was spent as an investment banker. Uh, currently, he is in the real estate business, operating a small consulting business and lecturing on a variety of talk topics, including American history, Turkey, and the Middle East. He has been on uh, national public radio, he has written uh, commentary pieces on uh, Turkey and the Middle East, published scholarly articles on um, the Ottoman, on Ottoman and Turkish law. He uh, spent a couple of semesters uh, teaching in Istanbul uh, on uh, U.S.-Turkish relations. Uh, he has been a board member of the English-speaking union, a past uh, Virginia state president of the Sons of the American Revolution, and has served on the board of the American Friends of Turkey for over 23 years. Uh, Marilyn uh, is his wife, who's here with us, and we're delighted to have you, and they have two grown children. And so, uh, Phil, it's a great pleasure to have you. The floor is yours. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. <clears throat> investment bank in Turkey. Is that? Yes. They're, they're for Bankers Trust Company, for some of you who are old enough to remember terrific. that bank. Terrific. Yeah. Anyway, the floor. <laughs> all right. Well, I thank you all for coming here today uh, and for indulging my wife. She's my primary public relations agent and always has been and always will be. Um, so I'm glad that she can be uh, here today. I had some other friends and friends of our children, uh, and former colleagues that I hope could show, but it's Washington, D.C., and a lot of people have had uh, to cancel who were going to come in from outside, uh, with one exception, a new friend of my ours here. So anyway, thank you for coming. And um, what I want to talk about uh, today is uh, something I'm very passionate about. It, it turns out I've been involved in Turkey and the Middle East uh, for the better part of four decades, uh, either as a student or an investment banker or a teacher or a consultant or something. And uh, I've watched things develop and I have a kind of a sixth sense uh, about how, what, how people think in that part of the world. I had a little warm up by living also in Greece and living in Italy. So I had a little warm up on the subject of Turks when I when my, my wife and I were first married and uh, lived in Greece. So 
Um, I really feel like it's kind of a uh, very much a second home and we have great friends in that area. And it's not the subject of today's conversation, although I'm happy to field a question during Q&A, but I'm very disappointed at the more recent turn of events under the leadership of uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan uh, in Turkey. But today really what I want to talk about, I, I'd like to focus on <clears throat> this story of the Eastern question, war in Crimea, lessons. Uh, it's an old story, but uh, I'd like to focus your attention, which sometimes people uh, neglect a little bit. I want to look at geography today, and I want to look at uh, perception, and in particular I want to look at uh, threat perception. So, I'm going to break the talk up into where I'll talk about historic geopolitical perspectives, the ancient world, Greeks and Persians, Crusader perspective, Christendom, the West versus Islam, the Ottoman threat to the West, and Russian designs on the Ottoman Empire uh, beginning in the 18th century. And then I will go more specifically into what we know of uh, and think of in particular the term, the Eastern question, which is, uh, really comes to life in the 19th century. And we'll look at religion and, uh, within Christianity, Latin versus Orthodox, Western Europe versus Russia, strategic considerations, military and commercial considerations. We'll actually look briefly at the Crimean War. Um, we'll look at the allies that were involved, uh, where the Ottomans figured into that equation, and uh, try to get a better handle on the subject of the Allied objective, which is really to contain Russian expansion uh, by propping up the Ottoman Empire. For fear of letting it fall apart too quickly and uncontrollably, there was a huge concern that allies, not just, uh, not just contention with Russia, but between France and England and Austria, uh, they might up all fighting each other for the spoils of this crumbling Ottoman Empire uh, in the 19th century. And then we'll move uh, to the current situation now, and we'll look at what I call the Eastern question in its 21st century uh, perspective here today with Russian strategic goals vis-a-vis uh, -vis Crimea, Ukraine, Syria, and Iran. Again, you'll see the geography of what connects all that. And uh, American NATO versus Putin's Russia uh, in the empire today. So when we talk about threat perceptions, um, I, th I think that uh, Rudyard Kipling really hit the nail on the head in the, in the late 19th century when he wrote these, uh, these words that are famous to everybody. Unfortunately, the first sentence is, is is better known, understandably so, uh, <clears throat> than the second sentence, which is also important. The first sentence speaks to something which is, seems to be an obvious reaction and, and a means of explaining east-west tension here that um, we'll, we'll, we'll never find really any resolution to that conflict and that tension. The second sentence I find very interesting uh, where he's basically saying, as you can see here, well, at the end of the day, uh, there's neither east nor west border nor breed no birth. When two strong men stand face to face, though they come from the ends of the earth. So uh, I've always thought that this was uh, 
very prescient, very, very useful, and something people know, and the second sentence is something they don't know, which is also significant to keep uh, in mind. So let me spend a little bit here on geography before we go into the Eastern question in particular, uh, and make, make the point known to you all that kind of depends on where you're standing. Now here, by way, by way of hyperbole, I've uh, created a map, and there's a map here that you all, many of you have probably seen uh, over the years. It's a <coughs> New Yorker, or more particularly um, somebody from Manhattan's perspective of what the world looks like. Uh, and you can see out here on the, on the periphery, <coughs> Asia and so forth, and South America some down here, and Europe and what have you. And I, by way of contrast, but to make the same point, it's an idea of what uh, the world looks, looks like uh, in Beijing. Uh, again, uh, hyperbole, but you see you, you very quickly get o over to uh, oops. you find yourself in the Pacific here in a hurry, and all of a sudden you can see Latin America on the far right. Am I on this? Well, anyway, you have Latin America here, you can't see it. And in the distance, Europe and Africa, America and so forth. So this is by, by way of exaggeration, but trying to make the point that uh, the world looks differently depending on where you stand. This, as Americans and Europeans, is what we would basically think of as the world as we generally might agree to, to what it looks like in that hemisphere. And we will go, we will focus on this, this concept between East and West uh, that gets uh, defined here uh, in the Dardanelles uh, leading up to the uh, Sea of Marmara uh, from the Aegean and Greeks on one side and Persians and other threats uh, to the east of them. So <clears throat> this concept of threat perception between east and west, uh, and it exists in the east as well. I will spend more time on the west. But it, it has a prominence that goes well, well beyond the 300-year-old period, 300-year period that I'll be speaking about today. The prominence essentially goes back uh, to pre-Christian uh, uh, times. And uh, I will just give you from, remind you all of Homer's Iliad and who the good guys were, the Greeks, and who the bad guys were, uh, the Trojans. So there's already, uh, we just move up about 500 years and we get to Herodotus. And Herodotus is writing and, it said, and he says, and I quote, to attack the Persians had to cross the Hellespont, the Dardanelles, crossing from east to west, and from Asia to Europe, unquote. So, already in the millennium before uh, Christ appears, we, we have a, a world in which it, some, one a famous historian here, who didn't make this up out of whole cloth, but reflecting a perception and perspective, uh, that was already uh, well developed here of threats coming from the east. Now, <clears throat> this continues. You know, there's there is a a, a chance for uh, 
for this conflict basically is continued by the Romans. Uh, Alexander the Great does the, is the first great Western counterstrike against threats from the East, uh, defeating Darius the Third in the Battle of Isis in 332 BC, and the Romans pick up, dealing with the Eastern threat, and we we get to um, a sort of cartoon version by a, a cartographic, uh, geographic uh, historian who, who puts some boxes here which, however simplified, tell about, tell about a world um, in coming, in, coming into this first uh, millennium after Christ. Early on we have what the Greeks referred to as the ecumene, the known world. And the known world is sort of has these major uh, powers in it, and you enter the door of this box by Gibraltar, and you end up out in Persia, and you have some smaller kingdoms, principalities, around at that time, and peoples, and you basically have what he describes here as a Western Empire, um, sort of defined uh, geographically by the Adriatic and Malta, and you have this Hellespont, he's got here as the door, that's the sort of bridge to the Eastern Empire and what we think of as, you know, the area of Iraq today, and then following in the next box further east to Persia and Afghanistan. And you see the Suez River coming here, uh, sea in, in the Red Sea, and the Suez coming in here in the middle of the box, and uh, the, the Gulf uh, out here entering into uh, Persian Gulf into Basra. Again, it's, it's fanciful, but it sometimes helps people to visualize uh, what's going on here, uh, here. So this takes us into the Byzantine world and you have, uh, have many of you been to Istanbul? Okay, alright, well you, you will certainly know St. Sophia either because you saw it in person or you've read about it, but uh, Justinian completes this incredible basilica the likes of which takes another thousand years to be produced in the West at St. Peter's in Rome. And you see that uh, by 1453, uh, Constantinople is finally conquered by Fatih, Sultan the Conqueror, and uh, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk turns it into a museum in, uh, in, in 1935. So there is a Byzantine world here sort of protecting uh, Christendom uh, at the time, and the uh, the world seems to be fairly steady, but not for long. It isn't long before we have Huns and so forth uh, <clears throat> beginning to have suffer from inadequate uh, food resources and beginning to look west. So you have people in the east saying, go west, young man. Here's another one of these maps, uh, which gives you a perspective that you might not normally have, but does create a sense of the peninsularity going from east and west and west to east. And it is precisely the, the way the world, in a sense, was found, found and gets conquered uh, by these various tribes uh, from the Asian steppe, who go as far as, you know, Goths into Italy and Visigoths, Western Goths into Spain. But it gives a sense of, of the world that, that might be easier to understand if you if you came from the Asian steppe rather than coming from Europe or the United States. So, 
So now the, the Byzantine world uh, gets a little bit more complicated to maintain here, uh, and you see the beginnings of other empires uh, developing in Poland and, and Germany and so forth. Uh, and beginning across North Africa, and you have Byzantium here, and you have uh, the these the, uh, Seljuks, Turks, who come into Anatolia and Turkey, uh, who started coming who started coming west off the Asian plains, seventh century, particularly the eighth century, uh, fought with the Arabs, and. Um, were defeated. They came in relatively small numbers, but the Arabs, the Abbasids of Baghdad, were wonderfully impressed with the fighting skills of these Turks on horseback. And after a while, they decide maybe they should just hire them and bring them in as a Praetorian guard. And then, as things happen with Praetorian guards, they eventually overthrow their rulers, and people, uh, and they sort of divide up the difference, uh, divide up the the expansion of Islam between the caliphate and the caliphs who deal with the spiritual matters of the faithful and they turn the sword over essentially to Seljuk Turks who begin to carry Islam into Anatolia and uh, down to Egypt and across uh, North Africa. It's interesting that <clears throat> uh, in the Persian, uh, in, in the courts in Baghdad uh, when speaking about law or religion it was all done in Arabic the language of the court itself was in Persian, but the language in the army, in the Ordu, was Turkish. It was uh, Turkic, uh, because all the military matters essentially had been turned over to these Seljuk Turks who had accepted Islam and uh, it become quite powerful and basically said, okay, you look after the spiritual side of life and we'll take responsibility for expanding uh, the uh, Islamic Empire west. <clears throat> so, the next threat that comes from the East, we have this new threat from Islam carried by the Seljuks. The next threat uh, gains is Kublai Khan, and then followed by eventually by Tamerlane. And I think I particularly find this map interesting. It's, it's a Mongol's eye view of the world. And there they are in the, in the Russian steppe, uh, Siberia and cold forests further north to China down to the south. But as they look west, and they say, how am I going to feed my people? Better grazing, pillage, wealth, um, let's go west. So this is sort of a, a fanciful notion <coughs> hemmed in by the Gobi Desert in the south and the uh, frozen tundras. Uh, in their north, they look west, and that may be what the world kind of looked like to them as an uh, objective. <clears throat> the next threat, of course, is the rise of the Ottoman Empire. Now, the, the, the Ottomans were actually spared the wrath <clears throat> of the Mongols, mostly because of their geographic location. Most of Anatolia was governed uh, by the Seljuk Turks. Their capital was eventually in Konya, right here. And Osman I and his tribe of Turkic peoples were sort of right here on the coast. And the Mongols got all the way into central Anatolia, 
sufficiently basically to break up the Seljuk rule and the Seljuk kingdoms. And then they, they, were, fine, they were eventually uh, defeated uh, by Mamluks and uh, Ayyubs coming uh, from the south, Saladin successors, and finally forces the Mongols to retreat, or as many of them did, as most, so many conquerors do, they stayed, got married, better weather, better food. In the meantime, it left this Turkic tribe here uh, on the Aegean coast, uh, founded by Osman the First <coughs> in 1299, and uh, it's his great-great-grandson who eventually conquers uh, Constantinople in 1453. And it turns out that the Byzantines uh, were having a hard time first dealing with the, with the Huns and the first horde, waves of hordes to come, then weakened further by a battle that takes place in the middle of the 11th century out on the edge of the eastern edge of Anatolia in an area called Malazgurt, uh, where the first time a Christian army is defeated by a, a Muslim army takes place. So this is a, it's just a, a handwriting on the wall, the Byzantines are uh, weakening, and as the, as the Ottoman Turks, uh, who are survivors of the Mongol invasions, begin to expand in Anatolia and cross the Dardanelles, and begin to expand into the Balkans, very often by virtue of negotiation with the Byzantines. So well, if you'll protect this passage, this trade route for us, so forth and so on, uh, will allow you to occupy certain areas. So literally by the middle of, uh, by the middle of the 15th century, when they get ready, get ready to lay siege to Constantinople, Constantinople is in fact already surrounded. It literally is already sur virtually surrounded by Muslims. And when this call, uh, Ottoman Turks, when this call for s support from the West is uh, come to come bail them out, uh, it's sort of like we don't know you anymore. When Constantine established the empire, moved it from Rome uh, to, <clears throat> to what is today Istanbul, to Constantinople, and established it as a capital uh, in the east, uh, all those people that arrived were speaking Latin. But within a, two or three hundred years, all those people essentially got absorbed by, by Greeks, the Greek Orthodox that were speaking Greek. And you end up having all these various Lateran councils, and you end up with disputes within the uh, Western Church, and finally this great schism at the same time that the Byzantines are getting defeated in the eastern part of Anatolia for the first time uh, army to army, uh, you have this great schism between the Catholics and the Orthodox. So all of a sudden the Byzantine world now is beginning to come unraveled, and when the uh, Byzantines ask for support from the West. The guys from the West said, you know, we've been fighting the Arabs. <clears throat> we've, been, we, we've been fighting the Moors out here. And we're not doing deals with them. We're trying to take back the Reconquista. We're trying to take back from the 12th century, 11th, early 12th century. We're working hard to, to reclaim Catholic Iberia. We're not doing deals. We're fighting them. These are famous guys like Beaugest, and if you read Middle French, uh, the, the songs of Roland, La Chanson de Roland, and there's a, whole, uh, there's a whole business of trying to roll back 
the Muslims in this reconquest of Spain, and they turn to, the, to their Byzantine people who, who don't speak Latin anymore, have no real association uh, with, the, with Western Christendom anymore. They're really more Eastern now, and saying, We're, you know, you've been selling out to the Muslims, why do you expect any support from us? Which, is, which would explain why the Fourth Crusade never got any further than Constantinople, supposed to go to uh, Egypt and take Egypt uh, from the Ayyubs, and they only got as far as Constantinople, and you would think that these Christians were, uh, were, were Muslims, dire enemies of one another, because as many of you will know, uh, the Latin Crusaders were basically slicing and dicing Orthodox Greek Christians uh, indiscriminately uh, in Constantinople uh, to a greater effect than, than they were uh, any Muslims in the era. So there's been considerable cultural and political and, and religious divorce uh, between the East and West uh, of Christendom, it falls. So. This sort of take, leaves us with uh, Constantinople, now Istanbul, in control of the Ottoman Turks. The Ottoman Turks controlling all the states of the Maghreb all the way over with the one exception, they never conquered Morocco. <coughs> having, having by this point still holding parts of Spain, uh, but they were about to finally be kicked out by Ferdinand and Isabella. Uh, and the Latin Crusaders in the West. And you now have this sort of world that is pretty well divided uh, between the cross and the crescent, which kind of begins to look like a world that we recognize today. So uh, by the time you are here, you know, in the, in the 15th century, the world is looking at now, you know, Christians can be fighting each other in the West, and Muslims are fighting each other. It actually only gets worse. The Safavid Shias fighting against the Ottoman Turks uh, with, within the Ottoman Empire. But the fact of the matter is, this huge swath of territory is now con controlled uh, by Islam, by the Ottomans, and you have uh, Western Europe uh, holding on uh, Western Christendom with their <clears throat> greatest fear being uh, the Turks in the 1520s, first arrive, 1527, arrive at the gates of Vienna, uh, get turned back, and then they show up again in 1682 or 83, where John Lanczowski's ancestors, uh, the, uh, the prince Siversky, uh, managed to turn back, after having lost to him two years before, managed to turn back the Ottomans, uh, at the gates of Vienna, and this, you get this, this gradual rollback. Now compounded by a power that's beginning to develop in the West that's based on technology, based on reformation, based on free thought, based on renaissance, and so forth, that's allowing Europe to begin to achieve things. They first, they literally, I mean, one of the, the reasons for developing uh, great ships that could travel the oceans was to circumvent the Mediterranean, which had, you know, by, by the 1400s, and certainly the first half of the 1500s, had become known as the Mediterranean Lake. You couldn't, uh, the Europeans were paying taxes on everything that was coming uh, from the east, uh, and pe people were, were, were paying, uh, 
paying the Ottomans uh, coming and going in the Middle East on this Silk Road, which the Chinese are now busy trying to uh, reinvent, as you know, uh, today. So this is a world where the, the astrolabe, which is reintroduced uh, through uh, Andalusian Spain and the Arabs, <coughs> the ancient learnings of the Greek philosophers and Galen and so medicine and so forth, there's a technology transfer that starts, especially in the 12th century, uh, through uh, Al-Andalus and Spain uh, to the benefit of, of Western Europe. Now, all, those, all the translations that had been lost with the burning of the library in Alexandria and so forth, well, some of these volumes had been maintained and were, ended up were translated into Arabic. Uh, and that learning benefited Baghdad and the... Uh, and the Abbasid Umayyad, and more particularly the Abbasid uh, Muslims. But that information found its way across North Africa via Al-Andalus into Spain. Uh, that information uh, in, included a lot of things that came in Latin, which meant that the kings and queens and princes could send their scribes and, and, and academic monks down to study and to learn Arabic and to translate from the, uh, Plato and Aristotle and so forth, translate that uh, into Latin. But then who could read Latin at the time? Very few people, but it was the beginning. Now what happens in that story is that 200 years later you have this vernacular language that's being developed by Dante uh, <coughs> and, and Shakespeare and uh, Racine and Corneille in France. Now all of a sudden the scholars are going down and uh, they're now translating the Latin texts into the vernacular languages in this explosion of information that came from the ancient world. Uh, and one of the things was the famous Greek astrolabe for navigating. Now the Arabs and Turks had that same technology but hadn't reason to develop it to the same extent because they basically tended not to cross the Mediterranean where they, they could help it. They sailed coast to coast to coast and the astrolabe was of some significance. But if you're, if you're Magellan and you're beginning to do transatlantic and trans-Pacific uh, voyaging, uh, understanding how to use that, that Greek astrolabe and ends up being incredibly important, but you have, to be, you have to be able to build ships that can withstand the deep oceans. So the West starts developing these more powerful oceans. You have this renaissance taking place and then you have this explosion of learning uh, through vernacular languages. You have the rise of a new merchant class, eventually known as the bourgeoisie, but these are burghers. And you have the creation of new capital markets. None of this is happening in the East. New capital markets. They create a stock market in London and Amsterdam. Then they create an insurance market. These were new technologies, and heretofore, all wealth had really come from royalty. Now there's a new, sense, a new source of wealth in the West, uh, and a, a wealth that was looking for a profit. And we create mechanisms, a joint stock company, where you could lay off the corporate risk so it didn't extend be, uh, beyond the investment in the corporation, and where we create an insurance market. And because we, we know that for, for every 10 voyages that go out for exploration and resources, uh, you know, maybe four of those ships are going to be either hijacked or will we'll go down in a shipwreck, whatever the number is. I'm not sure I want to put my money at risk, but if there's some way to lay off the risk to people who are willing to take a calculated risk, this whole new Western technology, this expansion information, 
the freedom that the uh, the whole concept that Martin Luther essentially brings is the, is in the concept of individual freedom. It gets exploded in the Reformation. These are all things that are happening that allow the West technologically to begin to overcome uh, the Muslim East. But the threats per, the threats per, uh, continued all the way, you know, as I say, through the through the 1680s, where uh, where Western Europe might have succumbed if Vienna had fallen, much of Western Europe might have also succumbed to the advance of Islam. This was, in fact, the second time Islam was turned back from the West. The first time Islam was turned back from the West was via the Iberian uh, Peninsula, Al-Andalus, the Berbers and Moors, uh, when they arrived and uh, managed to push north of the Pyrenees into southern France, controlled Marseille and so forth, and got as far as Poitiers, got as far as the Loire River Valley, when they were stopped finally by Charlemagne's grandfather, Charles Martel, Charles the Hammer, in a battle of 732 AD. That was the first time Europe might have become Muslim. Uh, we talk about the, second, the First World War, the Second World War, America might, in England, speaking German, German. well, everybody might have been speaking Arabic in the, in the middle of the 8th century. Uh, the the uh, Islamic incursion in Western Europe was so threatening. That, 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 this is almost a thousand years later, and they're, they're at the gates of Vienna. Finally, they get pushed back. A lot of things begin to change in terms of technology. And uh, it's, uh, well, let, let me just jump, jump beyond this. So we, we now have a stage set where we, I've talked a little bit about threat perceptions, where they come from, east and west. Uh, trust me, I can also talk about perceptions in the East about Western threats that go all the way back to the Crusades. You know, th there was one word that defined threat to a Muslim in the Middle East. One word from the time of the Crusades. Frank. All Crusaders were called Franks because the original Crusaders were by and large French. They were launched uh, out, of, uh, out, of, out of France. They picked up people from other, other countries, especially in successive crusades. But the, the one word, for, you mentioned Frank, and it would strike fear in, into, into families. I've I read documents about this. You know, average people, that, that's what that, their threat was. Our threat were threats that go back uh, to the Iliad and, and go back to the Persians. And the attempt to, to push back that threat from Alexander, and then the Romans, and then the Byzantines, and then the threat comes again from the east, uh, from, from the hordes, from the Huns and Goths and Visigoths, and then subsequently by the Mongols. So now we have this, the stage is kind of set for looking at the, the eastern question in geographic terms. Eastern now means something. Eastern has this connotation, oh, east is east and west is west. Eastern already, by the late 1700s, probably by the, by the begin, probably by 1699, uh, when the Ottomans were first had to sign, uh, sign a treaty with the Russians after the Battle of Zenta. It was the beginning of the rise of Russia, Peter the Great, and by the time Catherine arrives, a couple generations later, uh, Catherine now has a full-blown strategic concept of how important 
it would be for them to control uh, the Mediterranean, uh, control the Black Sea, have an access to a year-round port that doesn't freeze. You remember Vladivostok freezes in their archangel area. Uh, you know, the Navy would get frozen in the winter, whereas Sevastopol and Crimea uh, gave them uh, a, a Navy that Catherine could build, and she had to fight down there, and uh, she basically defeated the Turks in, in uh, 1773, just before our revolution, back King George tried to hire 17,000 crack Russian troops who just dispatched the Ottomans. And his distant cousin, Catherine, said, I think your whole concept of treating the people in, in uh, North America is ludicrous, the way you're trying to deal with this re rebellion, as you call it. And I have no interest whatsoever in hiring out my people. So he ended up, while well, King of England, he was also elector of Hanover. So he's able to go and raise, to make it simple, upwards of 30,000 Hessians as mercenaries to support the British efforts in North America, the Caribbean, and other places. So here we have this world here where this Russia who understands that it's important for them to expand south, understands the Ottoman Empire is in the way, understands the strategic significance of the Black Sea, and the Bosphorus and the connection to the Mediterranean understands the significance of the land connection to the Middle East and all the trade routes that cross through there. And so you have this competition. But what this is really showing you in <coughs> this Eastern question, the Russians felt that they had some particular rights uh, because they have plenty of Orthodox people in, in Serbia and in Greece you know, in Bulgaria and so forth, and they felt a certain uh, paternal instinct to go ahead and expand their empire down into the Balkans, and they felt they felt as though, uh, by geographic proximity and by more recent pilgrimage, uh, became so dangerous for pilgrims <coughs> in the west to try to get all the way uh, to to the east, and uh, logistically, uh, many Russian Orthodox were were making pilgrimages down here into, into the Holy Lands. And so the, the whole Russian concept of the Russian bear, which is now a threat from the east, let's call it the northeast. Islam is the southeast. Um, but the threat is from the east. This time now the threat is becoming, uh, uh, nobody sees it particularly, because they're all interested in, in vanquishing the Ottomans at seven, by, you know, by 1700. But by the middle 1700s, it was clear that Catherine uh, had her eyes on the Ottoman Empire, the Bosphorus, and the Black Sea. The Europeans took note of that. And you basically have uh, what's described here by this geographic guy who wrote, did, made these things. He said, quote, the stage was set for a war that would come, and come as no surprise. To answer the Eastern question to its advantage, the English and French joined in an alliance in order to defeat Russia's uh, political, religious uh, strategy to move the borders of its empire south, wrapping its bear claws from the Balkans to Suez. <clears throat> so <clears throat> here we have the, the stage. Is, the stage is really set now uh, for the Crimean War. The, the balance of power... Napoleon finally neutralized, and the whole world seems to be okay in 1815 in the Congress of Vienna, and the balance of power arrangements seem to be on the surface. Everybody seems to be happy, but um, actually nobody's really happy. Uh, 
So um, a lot of things start happening, including additional uh, incursions into the Ottoman Empire that make it clear that the Ottomans now are failing. They're failing technologically, they're failing politically, administratively, uh, economically. Uh, they're beginning to fail to, to be able to maintain their empire. At the same time, the Americans have just taken the English and French Enlightenment ideas and turned it into a revolution in America to set an example of a whole new concept called nationalism. And that concept of nation-state probably has its origin at the Treaties of Westphalia in 1640, but uh, itself a, a product of the Enlightenment thinking of the time. Now you have the French Enlightenment on top of that after the Glorious Revolution in England. Now you have this idea that sovereignty somehow has moved from being divine to, to, to something, if not popular, yet moving in that same direction. America sets up this example, breaks away from its mother country, so it doesn't take very long for the Greeks to figure out that you know maybe we should use the same example and enlist the support of great figures like Lord George Byron to write poetry on their behalf and they start a, a, an independence movement in the 1820s. So this is the first incursion of nationalism on the Ottoman Empire that's, that's making everybody, the big powers, both in Russia and Western Europe, nervous. This continues with revolution uh, in, in Egypt and continues essentially uh, right through the, through the century. The Russians, the Ottomans start a war in 1877 uh, with the Russians. Uh, they lose it badly. The, but uh, England and France and Germany now understand that we can't let them take over the Ottoman Empire or, or, or the Balkans or what have you. The Habsburgs are very nervous by now in the 1870s and so these Western empires and England and France come together and said, well, you've got to give some of that back. But you, you, this dealing with this threat of Russia is, is very much alive, you know, even, even well after the Crimean War. So let's just briefly take a look at the war itself, the myth and the reality of the Crimean War. <clears throat> um, let me deal for a second with the myth. Half a league, half a league, half a league onward. All in the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, charged for the guns, he said. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, was there a man dismayed? Not though the soldier knew, someone had blundered. Theirs not to make reply, theirs not to reason why, theirs but to do and die into the valley of death rode the 600. Tennyson's great poem, the last stanza of which reads, When can their glory fade? Oh, the wild charge they made. All the world wondered, honor the charge they made. Honor the light brigade, the noble 600. Um, this is a war that uh, was a, was a crossover in the history of modern warfare, and most of you, I'm sure, are aware of this, but this is, this is the first war where it's the, the tail end of the code of chivalry, tail end, is still being observed. This is eight years, seven years before the American Civil War. It's the first time <clears throat> that electricity and telegraph 
was available to both sides. It's the first time you had employers using, uh, you had correspondents using modern uh, terminology embedded with the troops and sending out daily dispatches. It was the first time where you had repeating rifles, which worked hugely to the advantage of the technologically superior Western forces, the Russian forces. But um, it's in, from, from many standpoints, the Crimean War tends to create the concept of something terribly local, but it basically had globe-girdling significance and had the major players <coughs> in the world engaged <coughs> in that war. <coughs> Uh, Three-quarters of a million people died in that war, disease, two-thirds of them Russian. Uh, some quarter million of the Russians are said to lie in three mass graves in Sevastopol. So, <clears throat> this is the way the world looked like, uh, a map of the period here, uh, you all can see in the back. Uh, the Crimea here, it's of some significance here, I mean these are, there, you know, uh, some Moldavia, Bessarabia, the Dnester, Odessa, just to point it out to you, uh, the Crimea, and significantly here you see that it turns out uh, the Strait of, of uh, Kerch separates any land connection with Russia when they invaded 2014, there was no land connection. The land connection is through uh, the Ukraine. So this is what the world looked like. Uh, and here is Balaclava and Yalta, just to orient you. Here are some battle sites that uh, every, Brit every British kid uh, knows so well, the name Balaclava, Inkerman, Sevastopol, Alma. This is the Allied fleet came in from here. <clears throat> and uh, a little rendition of what things looked like at the time. I'm sure you can figure out who the Russians are in this battle. And uh, here are the noble 600 and actually 50 or so uh, going in <coughs> Balaclava. Here I am last year in October looking at the same battlefield. Anybody here who's kind of a scholar of the Crimean War know anything about it? I won't get any, any more detail. And if you go further north you can actually see where, you know, where that painting was made. It's a little bit hard to see, but the Russians, the valley took the troops here, and Russians had batteries uh, on this high ground, had batteries on this ground, and their main army and artillery were at the back of this, and it's into this group uh, that they uh, charged. They were, in fact, supposed to chase after, the orders got confused, they were supposed to chase after a retreating. Uh, a re redoubt had been abandoned, the Scots Highlanders uh, had put them under huge pressure, and they were trying to hitch up their cannon and wagons and escape back to where their main forces were. 
And that's what the Light Brigade was supposed to attack, and instead they went into the main jaws of the Valley of Death. So a lot of people were criticized, to say the least, to Lord Raglan, who was the senior commander. Cardigan, Lucan, a lot of finger-pointing and blaming. But the fact of the matter is that people knew the story, and they knew the tragedy that had taken, befallen them uh, within days because of the modern telegraph. So there was already public feedback uh, that was coming back, and the population and the politicians <coughs> were reacting. The aftermath of, <coughs> of this, uh, I think, is, is uh, it's interesting here. This is written by Michael Reynolds, who wrote a book uh, two years ago called Shattering Empires. Is at Princeton? He said, the Crimean War opened up the Muslim world of the Ottoman Empire to Western armies and technologies, accelerating its integration into the global capitalist economy, and sparked an Islamic reaction against the West, which continues to this day. European Russophobia, growing stronger, trumping Turkophobia, growing weaker. Russians came away with complete disillusionment that the Christian West had sided with the Turks. So, <clears throat> the real aftermath of this is that this would leave the Ottomans on external life support and the Russians uh, with unrequited uh, aspirations. Uh, this is a <clears throat> famous diorama similar. Has anybody seen the one up at Gettysburg? with the Civil War diorama, the museum in Gettysburg? No. This is totally redone, quite a few million dollars. I saw it when I was 13, I got to see it last summer, totally redone. Out of the same school of art in the late 1880s when people didn't have <coughs> Netflix at home, one of the things that people used to do was <coughs> go and see these dioramas. The diorama that's done of the Battle of Sevastopol is, is literally, in a circular building, is literally extraordinary. <clears throat> and then I quietly went down and hired a guy with a small boat to uh, tour the uh, harbor there at Sevastopol, where I saw rusting, this is, I'm there last October, <clears throat> rusting Ukrainian warships, continue around the harbor. Uh, looking across one of the big granaries, they're huge. The Ukraine, as you know, breadbasket, uh, huge exporters of grains, primarily used for pasta in Turkey and Italy, by the way. And here's a <coughs> Russian missile frigate right here. <coughs> and then I continue around a little bit more, and I come across a sub pen. pull out my smartphone and quietly take a couple pictures and, and continue on. So <clears throat> I was, believe me, um, you might be anxious flying into Turkey today. I was, I was so anxious to get, to get out of Russia uh, after, with knowing what was on my smartphone. Uh, but anyway, it was a great opportunity for me to look at Crimea then and Balaclava had an expert I mean, we got way off the regular tourist stuff, and this guy was a real expert on the movements of all the, the Allies and the Russians. 
and then to have this opportunity to go down the harbor and witness the results of <clears throat> a two-year, then two-year-old annexation of Crimea. So this basically takes us uh, to today's uh, situation here. And um, I would argue that America would pick up the mantle of the European West after World War II, as we did everything uh, around the world for France and England and Portugal and Germany. Through her, uh, America, through her experience in and around the Mediterranean, which actually began in the 19th century, from its battles with Barbary pirates, the establishment of an embassy at the Sublime Port in 1831, the work of Christian missionaries in the establishment of what came to be known as the Universities of Beirut and the University of uh, the Bosphorus in Istanbul, all started by the Near East College Foundation of Christian Missions in the 19th century. <clears throat> so now we're looking at this world that uh, you hear a lot about with my friend here on your faculty and his book, uh, The Intermarium, Mark Kodakiewicz. Uh, this is this world right now that where the Cold War seems to be uh, heating uh, back up again. You can see Crimea in black and the Ukraine. Looking at it uh, a little more closely with uh, Kiev here. And Odessa down here, the Crimean Peninsula here, the Strait of Kerch, uh, where the Russians are busy building a causeway to connect so they can move truck traffic across, and Donetsk, the Don River Basin. So this sort of brings us to the current situation today. We're looking at this 21st century of the Eastern question. America has picked up the mantle uh, on behalf of France and England, but the concerns are the same. Uh, they're now seen through uh, America and through the eyes of the EU and, and through NATO. And this area in blue is the Don Basin, uh, which has for actually quite some time, going back into the 1800s. Uh, they had discovered, late 1800s, discovered very pure strains of coking coal. And this has uh, been a strategic place for building steel. Uh, for a long time, it was a major objective of the Russians, of the Germans, in World War II, precisely for that reason. And <clears throat> We're looking at this pro-Russian separatist movement, like various movements, separatist movements, seeing various places uh, around the world. <clears throat> Where Ukraine uh, essentially uh, becomes, uh, with the fall of the Iron Curtain, becomes a country again. Ukraine was, a, Ukraine was a country for about two years after World War I, and then Stalin took it over. So the whole idea of Ukraine uh, is, a, is one that has been historically challenging for Ukrainians to geographically, philosophically, his, historically uh, rationalize. If there was ever a time when you, Ukrainians 
controlled Ukraine was probably in the middle 1600s when most of what we know of modern Ukraine today was controlled by the Cossacks uh, of the Ukraine. So from if not, 17, if not 1773, certainly by 1783 until 1954 when Stalin made a gift uh, of, of uh, the Crimea uh, to the Ukrainians. You, the Crimea had been a part of, of Russia for hundreds of years. It was crucial yeah. in the 60s, actually. Pardon me? It was crucial in the 60s. No, it was Khrushchev in 1954. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. I don't know what, what I said. But it's Khrushchev in 54. So anyway, one of the things that people forget, and the importance of religion here, when we look at the Eastern question, it continues to be an, an issue um, and a leverage or fulcrum uh, point, is that the, the Russians think of Khersonesis, which is this little town that was once upon a time a Greek colony. In the Crimea is the site of where Vladimir I accepts Christianity uh, on behalf of the Kievan Rus. Again, in that 11th century uh, period, when all these things are happening. So, Russians think uh, have thought that, create, uh, that Crimea should belong to them for a long time. Catherine sort of made it a reality, and that lasted till Khrushchev gave it away as a gift, uh, not mostly because it was a liability uh, for the Russians uh, <coughs> at the time, but made to look like a gift. And then they become independent again with the fall of the Iron Curtain, as you all know. And um, since then, uh, trying to establish uh, Ukraine, and um, has almost by definition been problematic for, for them from the beginning, but certainly the early part of this century. And this, the, the uh, ethnic divides between the largely Russian-speaking and largely Russian people of the Don uh, Basin uh, sort of resent the fact that Ukraine's making noises about joining the EU, and the EU is making certain tantalizing suggestions that they might get there one day, and the, uh, the Russian people on the eastern part of the country are feeling uh, very nervous about this, and they are supported by Putin and the Russians who consider this part of their natural uh, buffer zone. In fact, the Ukraine has been a buffer zone for everybody uh, uh, throughout the last five or six hundred years. So we have these natural clashes here that I, I'm afraid are con that continue. I thought I couldn't resist this picture. Uh, pro-Russian separatists here. I understand you have to be pretty careful now. There's a lot of fake news propaganda being done. Same, same guys in, in changing costumes and depending on what they're trying to promote, but that's something literally a little bit more recent. <clears throat> and uh, in America, under Obama, trying to honor our co uh, commitments uh, to, to Eastern Europe, and the prospect of them possibly coming in has sent um, special attachments uh, from people from the 101st Airborne who are sitting uh, trying to train Ukrainian forces to deal with Russian separatists and, and Russians. Um, some of the tactical 
uh, work for the training that's going on here is actually done at the uh, Ground Intelligence Center in Charlottesville, Virginia, which I discovered a few weeks ago for somebody who's involved in this in uh, Ukraine a couple times in the last year, also served in Syria, uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. So the, the whole thing is becoming uh, predictably complicated, but if you, if you don't understand the connection between this historic reach of the Russian bear, which is not only down into the Balkans, but is also down into the Middle East, uh, for, for reasons we've discussed already, uh, you can't quite appreciate how happy the Russians are who, uh, who are, as you all know, are obliged to find some stability and support Assad because they have a navy base and now they have an air base. Uh, but it's an historic interest uh, for the Russians to be involved in the Middle East and arguably they've been forced out uh, after the Mossadegh affair in Iran and had been factors, real factors, in the Middle East since 1953. So they're back and they're back uh, and they're here to stay in the Middle East uh, making life more difficult, uh, making draw, drawing lines, red lines, uh, more difficult and if you don't think uh, that the Russians and the Eastern question uh, are alive and well vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the Middle East. Here's a meeting that took place uh, six months ago with the uh, U.S. Joint Chief uh, Dunford and uh, Halusi Akar, uh, the Russian, uh, the Turkish chief, and Gerasimov, the Russian, all sitting around the same table trying to decide what to do with Syria. That's just that picture is or date on there, I, I believe it was, yeah, in March, March 7th that meeting is taking place. So uh, we find ourselves, you know, once again with this Eastern question dealing with threat perceptions from the East becoming more crystallized in the uh, Ottoman period on how to deal with the, uh, the apparently inevitable collapse of the sick man of Europe, of the Ottoman Empire, and uh, neither the Crimean War, nor the First World War, nor the Second War resolved uh, this question, this Eastern question. It simply got tabled for another century. And I would argue we are dealing with the virtual, so many ways, the same, the same issues, the same strategic and the same uh, tactical issues uh, today. So, <clears throat> I, I like to think of this, I'm reminded of Mark Twain who said though that while history uh, doesn't repeat itself, it certainly rhymes. Thank you all for your time. I appreciate it.